Well, our passage for study this morning contains one of the most famous confrontations in history, and this is Moses' confrontation of Pharaoh when Moses' staff becomes a serpent. Uh, If you've seen the film, kind of the cartoon film, Prince of Egypt by DreamWorks, you know that when Moses throws down his staff in that film, it actually becomes a snake, a cobra. But then when the magicians of Egypt, well, when they have their turn, after Pharaoh commands them to act, Hotep and Hoy, they do the same thing, but of course they incorporate lights and smoke and shadows in order to make it seem like they had turned their staffs into serpents, when really it was just something of a parlor trick. But it's very interesting, and it was interesting for me as I studied this passage this week, is that when you look at this text, there's actually no hint at all of any kind of trickery that was occurring. Instead, what you see in this passage is really a confrontation between two gods. You see, Moses is performing an actual miracle, and the sorcerers of Egypt are performing an actual miracle. But in this confrontation, you have these two gods on the stage. You have the true God, Yahweh, and you've got a false god, a pretend god, Pharaoh. But notice that Pharaoh is able to do some pretty amazing things. How's that possible? Well, it's because Pharaoh, behind Pharaoh, I should say, because behind Pharaoh, there was a real power. And that power behind Pharaoh was Satan. And Satan is known as the serpent of old in Revelation chapter 12. And he's also called the God of this world, which means that there is an evil power in this world. But as we will see, Satan is no match for God. And that's one of the wonderful things that you see in this passage. It's just one of the great themes of Scripture is that there is no false God. There is no enemy who is able to oppose God in the least. So this confrontation ends precisely the way we would expect. God defeats Pharaoh and so defeats the one behind him, Satan. This is helpful for us because we live in a world where Satan is still the God of this world. He's still at work, uh, and he's still powerful. But as the people of God, we don't have to be fearful. We can be confident because our God is mighty, and Satan is no match for him. And so we're a people who can be characterized by confidence at all times because we trust in the Lord who is the true God. So we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. It's been a few weeks since we have been in this book as we went through the holiday season Last time we were together, we studied chapter 5, verses 22, all the way to chapter 6, verse 13. And in that passage, if you remember, Moses was facing adversity. So God had come to Moses and he told him to go and to command Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And Moses had been absolutely faithful. He had done that. But Pharaoh did not respond well at all. Actually, Pharaoh increased his level of persecution of the people and forced them to make bricks, but now making bricks without straw. And that hard labor became really a wedge between Moses and the people of Israel. So that the people of Israel began to blame Moses for the increased suffering that they were experiencing at the hand of Pharaoh. And so, as you would expect when we left the passage in chapter uh, 6, verse 13, Moses was discouraged by what he was experiencing. You see, Moses was looking at himself, and he was looking at his own resources. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, we will be discouraged. Moses couldn't imagine how he'd ever be able to convince Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. But as we'll see in our passage, which we've just read together, chapter 6, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 13, Moses is going to learn very soon that he will never have to face Pharaoh on his own. He said, God will be at work. God is going to be the one who ultimately is going to force Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. 
In other words, Yahweh is going to be the one that does the fighting. And he's going to be the one that wins this majestic victory. What did Moses need to do? All Moses needed to do was to obey God's word. And that's encouraging for us because God is going to fight the battles for us as well. He's going to win the victory. And all we need to do is to cling to his word. As we're studying this passage together this morning, we're going to learn three truths. So three truths from Exodus chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 13. First, we're going to see that God patiently accomplishes his purposes. God patiently accomplishes his purposes. We'll see that in chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 6, verse 27. Second, we're going to see God's ministers are to speak God's word. God's ministers are to speak God's word. We'll see that in chapter 6, verse 28 to chapter 7, verse 7. And third, we're going to see that God is greater than all his enemies. We'll see that in chapter 7, verse 8 to chapter 7, verse 13. Let's look at that first truth together then. God patiently accomplishes his purposes. I do think it's important to note that many people find genealogies in the Bible to be boring. Reading through line after line of difficult to pronounce Hebrew names, and it doesn't matter if you've been to seminary or not, they're still difficult to pronounce. It can be a little tedious for us. Uh, one person has called the genealogies of the Bible scriptural somonex. But God, and this is important for us to realize, God clearly thinks these genealogies are important. How do we know that? Because as you read through the Bible, you see over and over, he sprinkles his word with these genealogies. And the names, they're difficult to pronounce, that's for sure. They're hard to pronounce. And yet each one of the names, they represent a real person, a person like you or I. A person who has received God's grace, a person in whose life God was powerfully at work. These genealogies are historical records, really, of God's faithfulness to his people. And they're also this, they're also a demonstration that God works patiently in the lives of his people to accomplish all of his purposes for their lives. So look with me again, verses 14 to 27. We won't take the time to read through those list of names there again, but you see it before us. And as you look at this genealogy there in verse 14 to verse 27, we can kind of wonder why it's here. After all, it kind of seems to break up the narrative. We were just learning about Moses as an encounter with Pharaoh, and he's discouraged. And all of a sudden, this genealogy is here, and we can wonder, well, why is this genealogy here? Well, actually, this genealogy was placed here on purpose. Yeah, we need to remember that we're on the verge now of seeing Moses and Aaron defeat Pharaoh and set the people of Israel free from Egypt. That means that Moses and Aaron are going to be towering figures in the history of the people of Israel. And so the author now pauses to help us understand precisely who Moses and Aaron were and really kind of where they fit in among the people of God. Now, looking at the genealogy itself, it's clear that there's a lot of information here. There's far more than we're going to be able to look at together this morning. But I do want us to see some of the highlights of this genealogy and draw some truths out of it before we move on. First, notice that this is a partial genealogy. So when you look at the first part of verse 14 in your copy of God's Word, it says, these are the heads of their father's families. And what you expect is you expect to see a genealogy that covers all 12 of Jacob's sons. But that's not what you see there. Actually, this genealogy only covers the first three sons of Jacob and Leah, Reuben and Simeon and Levi. But then notice that this genealogy is in a special way interested in the descendants of Levi. 
So it, it kind of narrows. The genealogy kind of narrows its focus to the family of Levi, and it establishes that Levi is the third oldest son of Jacob, and it also talks about his three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and also his eight grandsons, Libni, Shimei, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel, Mali, and Mushi. And then look in verses 20 to 22, and you see the, geneal- the genealogy. It actually kind of focuses in again a little further now to the children of Levi's grandsons, Amram, and Ishar, and Uziel. In verse 20, we see that Amram became the father of Moses and Aaron. And those are going to be the two that God uses to rescue the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, from the grasp of Pharaoh. And in verse 22, we are introduced to Izhar, who becomes the father of Korah. And of course, we're going to see later on that Korah is the one who rebels against Moses in the wilderness, and he is actually swallowed alive for his rebellion. And then in verses 22 to 23, the genealogy, it narrows its focus again. Now to the descendants of Aaron. So now it's focused on Aaron, and it introduces Aaron's four sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Uh, These are important because they're going to be ordained as priests before the Lord. But of course, Nadab and Abihu are going to die when they offer a, a strange sacrifice, an unauthorized fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10. But then Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, is going to be the one who ultimately... Uh, through his zeal for the Lord, puts a stop to a great plague that sweeps through the camp when the men of Israel sin with Midianite women. But finally, look at verses 26 and 27. You really get the main point of this genealogy, what it's trying to do. It says, It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, Bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So again, at its heart, this genealogy is placed here in order to establish the identity of Moses and Aaron and to help us understand where they fit in among the people of God. Now, what can we take away from this genealogy? Let me give you two lessons, two things that we can take away from this genealogy this morning. First, with God, there are no little people. With God, there are no little people. People. Francis Schaeffer gave a famous sermon entitled No Little People, No Little Places. And in the sermon, he drew this comparison. He, he pointed our attention to the staff of Moses. And that's just a normal, you know, shepherd's staff. It's just a piece of wood. But then God takes that staff, and with that staff, he does wondrous miracles all throughout the book of Exodus. In the same way, we are nothing in ourselves, we're just little people. But the point is that God can use us to accomplish great purposes by his power. And we see that truth in this genealogy. So think about Moses and Aaron. What makes them any different than any of the other names that are listed here? What makes them any different than Mali or Mushi? Well, the difference is that God took Moses and Aaron and God worked powerfully in their lives and accomplish wonderful things through them. You see, with God, there are no little people. What that is saying is ultimately, the issue is not my power, and it's not your power. The issue is God's power. A second thing we should take away is that God patiently accomplishes His purposes. Yeah, we don't have a lot of year markers in this genealogy, but we do get some. We do see, for instance, that Levi lived 137 years And his son Kohath lived 133 years. And then Levi's grandson Amram lived 137 years. Now that's a lot of years. Well, what was God doing over the course of those years? Well, he was actually slowly working out his sovereign purposes. uh, And he took time to do it. So first he sends Joseph down into Egypt because he's going to use Joseph to save the family of Jacob 
from a great famine that was coming upon the earth. And then he caused the people to be fruitful and to multiply there so that the family of Jacob ultimately becomes the nation of Israel in short order. And then he permits his people to be oppressed by Pharaoh in part so that they would be willing to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. And when the time was right, what did God do? He raised up Moses, who's going to be the one to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, all according to his precise schedule, all according to his perfect plan. Friends, we we serve a patient God. God is not in a hurry. God is a God who works all things according to his sovereign schedule and not ours. And that can be hard for us, right? Because we're often in a hurry, aren't we? Now, when we're suffering, we want the solution to come right now. Uh, when, there's, when there's something that we're eager for or anxious about, we want the Lord to answer our prayer and we want him to do it right now. But we need to remember that our God patiently accomplishes his purposes in the lives of his people. So the sun, it rises slowly, patiently, if you will, until full day, and then it's shining in full strength. In the same way, God moves slowly and patiently until the time is right for him to accomplish all of his purposes in our lives. So we serve a patient God, and that means we need to, by his grace, learn to be a patient people while we wait for him to act. So we continue to pray, we continue to obey, we continue to cling to God's word, and we remember at the same time that God's timing is often much slower than ours, and God's timing is always perfect. And so we trust him. And we know that God promises to act in his perfect time. And so we will always have all that we need. So when you look at verses 14 to 27, you, you're reminded, we're reminded that God patiently accomplishes his purposes in the lives of his people. There's a second truth I want us to see this morning. God's ministers are to speak God's word. So look at at verse 28 of chapter 6. Let me read again to chapter 7, verse 7. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I'm such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. If you look at verses 28 to 30 of chapter 6, you see really it's something of a recap of what we've already studied back in chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. Uh, The situation is the same. Moses is discouraged. And why is he discouraged? Because he's looking at his own resources. And he knows that God has commanded him to speak to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will release the people. And Moses thinks, it's up to me. Somehow I have to do this. But he says, I'm such a poor speaker. You see, Moses is looking at himself. And he thought his speech was much too poor to convince Pharaoh to obey God. But then look what God does in verse 1 of chapter 7. The Lord then encourages Moses. God is a gracious God. He just encourages his people again and again and again. And he encourages them with the reality that Moses is God's prophet, which means something. It means that when Moses speaks, he speaks with the authority of God. 
That's what it means when, when the Lord says, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. Well, what does it mean? It means that when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he was speaking with the authority of God, and God was going to back up his words, and the Lord had given Aaron to Moses as a help so that Aaron would serve as something of a prophet to the prophet, right? Speaking the words of God to Pharaoh in such a way that God would act. It's an amazing thing to think that Moses, who is just a man, would be the very representative of God and speak in a way that commanded respect. And what would Moses' task be? Look at verse 2. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. Moses' task was to say precisely what the Lord had told him to say. Moses' task was not to ad-lib. It wasn't to add his own thoughts. It wasn't to make up his own understanding of the situation or provide helpful context in any ways. No, his task as a prophet of God was to simply preach and speak what God had said. But notice verses 3 and 4 that Pharaoh would not obey. Actually, God says he would harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply his signs and wonders there in the land of Egypt. Now, when we look at verse 3 and we see God say he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, many Christians, they kind of flinch at that. It's struggle to understand that. It seems wrong in some way. Is, is God somehow sinning against Pharaoh by making him sin, forcing him to do wrong? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 4 of Exodus. We're going to see the Lord working in Pharaoh's heart over and over, and there's this issue of hardening. But when God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he does not mean that he's going to add evil to Pharaoh in some way. Why? Because Pharaoh's heart was already evil. God didn't need to actively add evil to Pharaoh's heart in order to make Pharaoh more evil than he was. No, instead, when God hardens someone, he does so passively. And what I mean by that is he removes his restraining grace from that person's life so that that person then does what it's natural for that person to do, which is to sin. So think about it this way. Uh, what happens to the world when the, sun, when the sun's influence is reduced? It gets colder. Now, what happens in the heart of a sinner when God's restraining mercy, a mercy God is under no obligation to give, what happens when that restraining grace is pulled away? Well, the heart hardens. The heart gets more sinful. Why? Listen, friend, because that's what it means to be a sinner. That's what it means. That's how serious the affliction of sin is. And apart from God's grace, we can do no good. Well, this is what God was going to do. And what would happen as a result in verses 4 and 5? Pharaoh is going to refuse to obey God's command. And what's God going to do? He's going to bring judgment upon Egypt. And he's going to bring out the Israelites from Egypt. But now look at verse 5 because this is so important. Why is the Lord doing this? So that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord so that the Egyptians would see and know that he's sovereign and not Pharaoh. That Pharaoh, who is a pretend God, who claims to be God, is indeed a false God, someone who should not be worshipped. God is going to get glory from his defeat of Pharaoh. Now in verse 6, we see what happened. Aaron and Moses obeyed God. Aaron and Moses did just as the Lord commanded them. Notice they didn't add anything to God's message. They didn't ad-lib. Instead, they were committed to speaking God's word exactly. And in verse 7, when they did this, notice how old they were. Moses was 80, and Aaron was 83, and that means they were old. But God still had work for them to do. 
And that should be a wonderful encouragement for you if you're a senior saint in Christ Fellowship. Now, many senior saints, they kind of look around and they realize that many of their brothers and sisters and their friends have already gone on to be with Jesus, and they wonder, why am I still here? Well, brother or sister, you're still here because you're like Moses and Aaron. God still has work for you to do. That's why you're here. And that work looks different. That work can look like praying for the gospel ministry of this church, asking, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if 2024 is the year when the gospel goes forth from this church in such power that we just see people in our community converted and brought to Christ? That's a great thing that you can pray for. And you can pray for the fellow members of this church, asking God to be at work in their lives. Use your membership directory to guide you in doing that so you see their pictures and you see their names and you're praying for them regularly. And serve in practical ways as your strength permits. And I have to say as a pastor, this is one of the things that encourages me so much about this congregation. You serve. Uh, You find ways to serve. And according to your strength, you do that. And that is a great joy to see. And here's the other thing you can do. You can, by God's grace, share the wisdom that God has given to you with people who are younger than you. Because we need your wisdom. Because we don't have it all figured out. And you've lived longer than we have. And God can help you bless us Oh, brother and sister, if you're a senior saint, you are useful to the kingdom, and that's why you're here. God still has work for you to do, so may he help you do that work. Now look in verses 28 of chapter 6 to verse 7 of chapter 7. I want us just to make two observations, two, two more things we can learn. First, note that God's ministers are to speak God's word. In one of his most infamous sermons, Creflo Dollar, who is a prosperity gospel false teacher, spoke about how God wanted Creflo to get a $65 million uh, private jet for him to use in his quote-unquote ministry, and God wanted his congregation, Creflo's congregation, to help fund the purchase of that private jet. Uh, In the sermon, he said this very boldly, if I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, you cannot stop me. And there was rousing applause all throughout the congregation. It was really a living picture of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3, a warning about false teachers that says they will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. But you know what? It was also a great example of how not to preach. You see, preachers are not just to make up their own ideas of what God would want. Uh, Preachers are to speak where God has spoken. They're to to teach exactly what God had said. And that's what you see Moses and Aaron do in this passage. In verse 2, God commands them, you must say whatever I command you. And then in verse 6, what happens? Moses and Aaron, they they did just as God had commanded. They committed themselves to only speaking forth the message that God had given them. And that, brothers and sisters, is precisely the task of God's ministers. Anyone speaking God's word needs to follow this pattern. Whether you're a pastor or a missionary or a Sunday school teacher or a community group leader, uh, if you are teaching God's word, you need to teach what God has said and not come up with your own ideas to share with others. You know, we're we're to teach the message that has been entrusted to us. That's the role we've been given as ministers. A second observation, God desires his glory to be known. So look at verse 5. Notice what, what God says there to Moses. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. They'll know it. God's going to act. He's going to defeat Pharaoh. And he's going to do it in a, he's going to do it in a, a magnificent way. Uh, He's going to do it through great signs and wonders and acts of power. And notice he's going to do that so that he would be glorified for who he is. 
which is to say that the people of Egypt would know that Yahweh and not Pharaoh is the Lord and God would be glorified. And that means, brothers and sisters, one of our tasks as God's people in Williamsburg is to share the glory of God. We're to share God's glory with others. That means we need to tell others the great things that God has done. So the sermons that are preached from this pulpit at Christ Fellowship, they should proclaim the excellencies of our God. Uh, They should declare what God has done, and they should make much of his character and his works. And you know what? We should be sharing God's glory with suffering Christians. Because in the pain, we can become kind of confused, and we can struggle to understand who God is in the midst of our pain. But we need to be reminded, and we need to be reminding those who are suffering that God is faithful and that God is in complete control. We need to share God's glory with our children. It doesn't take much time at all for the truth of who God is to be lost. Just look at our culture. We need to take the time to share the wonderful works of God with our children so that they know what he has done, so that he's glorified in their lives. Now, friends, if you're a member of Christ Fellowship, we need more children's ministry volunteers to help us do that. Thank you for the way that you are doing that, but we're making some changes. It's going to require more volunteers, and I just want to put that before you to pray about that. As an avenue of service, yes, but as an opportunity to proclaim the glory of God to young hearts who need to know God's glory. And we need to share God's glory with the lost. And that's really what evangelism is when you think about what is evangelism? It is telling forth a message. Uh, It's a proclamation of good news, and it's good news of what? It's good news of what God has done. It's good news of what God has done to rescue sinners from their sin through Jesus Christ. And it's the most wonderful, it's the most wonderful message in the world. And it's the reality that God is a good and holy God who made us to love him and to serve him, to have a relationship with him and to walk with him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, they turned away from God. They decided that it would be better for them to live for themselves, to pursue their own desires and to live for him. And we send in them, and because we have come from them, we have all inherited that same kind of bent of nature so that we shrink down the world to the size of my own desires. And my primary focus is what's going to make me happy, and I need to be true to myself, and I need to put myself first. And that is at the heart of sin. So instead of worshiping God and glorifying Him, ultimately we're living our quickly passing lives trying to make as much of ourselves as possible. And it leads us to sin against God, and it leads us to harm others in countless ways. And the Bible says that that is sin, and the Bible says sin is serious, that it separates us from God, and there's no way we can be good enough for God because he's perfectly holy and we're not holy. And so left to ourselves, friend, you have to understand, there is nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to a holy God. In ourselves, we have no hope at all. But there's tremendous hope, and that's the gospel. That's the good news, is that God has done what we could not do. Uh, The Father sent His Son into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not come into this world simply to be a great teacher of moral ethics or to provide an example of what it looks like to be a nice person. No, Jesus came into this world with a mission, and His mission was to live a perfectly righteous life, the kind of life you and I should have lived, but we have all failed to live. And then his mission was to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. To lay his life down on the cross. Why? Because you and I deserved death for our sins. But he bore the wrath of God in himself on the cross. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And the glory of the gospel is this. All who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, 
put their faith in him, simply trust in him and him alone, what he has done, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, all who do that are saved. Which is to say, all of their sins, past, present, and future, are completely washed away. Jesus is their Savior. His righteousness covers them perfectly so that when God looks at them, He does not see their sin. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And that offer of salvation is for you this morning, friend. If you would turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Cry out to Him and be saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ's fellowship, consider what it means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ. Consider what it means to be perfectly accepted by this glorious and gracious God. And now consider the privilege that we have to share that message with our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors who don't know Jesus and need to know Jesus. May God help us be faithful this year to proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear about Jesus. So third truth this morning. God is greater than all of his enemies. Look at chapter 7, verse 8 to chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, really up to this point in the, the narrative of Exodus, Pharaoh seems to be winning, right? He's divided Moses from the people. He's, he's flexed his authority as king of Egypt. But this is the point in the narrative now where, where God begins to move in power in such a way that it is very, very clear that Pharaoh has no hope of defeating the Lord. In verses 8 and 9, the Lord gives Moses and Aaron commands that when they confront Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to ask them to perform a miracle. They're to throw down their staff, Aaron's, or Moses' staff, Aaron's to throw that down, and then it's going to become a snake, and that's probably a cobra. And in verse 10, that's, that's what happens. Aaron throws down the staff, and it becomes a serpent. And that's amazing in and of itself. But we would be missing something of the significance of this if we didn't understand kind of more fully the, the background, and in particular, the background of the message that God was sending when he caused that staff to turn into a serpent. And that's because Egyptian culture was fascinated with snakes, particularly with cobras. Pharaoh himself wore a crown that had a cobra's head on it, and that cobra's head was intended to be a warning to the enemies of Egypt. It also symbolized his authority, but really his fascination and Egypt's fascination with these serpents was even more sinister because Pharaoh and the Egyptians worshipped the cobra as the goddess Wajet. Some pharaohs believed that it was Wajet who actually gave them their authority and power to reign on the throne. Others viewed her as the protector of Pharaoh. Really, the serpent crown of Pharaoh symbolized all the authority and all the sovereignty and even all of the magic with which the gods endued Pharaoh. 
And so Pharaoh would say this when he ascended the throne of Egypt. He would take the crown and he would say, O great one, O magician, fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. Whether he was fully aware of what he was doing or not, when Pharaoh invoked the serpent goddess Wajet, he was worshiping Satan, who is the serpent of old. And now we see what it means when the Lord chose to take that staff and turn it into a serpent. It was a direct assault against the authority and the beliefs of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It was really a declaration of war. It was a very clear sign that God, and not Pharaoh or any of the gods who supposedly gave Pharaoh authority, that God was the true God. But amazingly, look at verse 11, what happens. When Pharaoh saw what Aaron had done, he called his wise men and sorcerers, and by their occult practices, each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. Now, some commentators, when they look at this, they begin to talk about kind of parlor tricks. They speak of snake charmers in Egypt that can do all kinds of amazing things with cobra. I do not think that there is one hint in verse 11 that this was a parlor trick. This is a confrontation between powers. There's real power involved here, occult power involved here, Satan's power on display. But then in verse 12, God displays his sovereignty again. Notice that Moses' staff, serpent, swallows the staff, serpents of these sorcerers of Egypt. And the message is clear, Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh is the true God of Egypt. But then notice in verse 13, even after witnessing that, Pharaoh's heart is hard and he doesn't listen. There's a lot we can say. I want us to conclude this morning with one observation. God is greater than all his enemies. It is very clear from verse 8 to 13 of chapter 7 that Satan has real power. Aaron throws down the staff, it becomes a serpent. But then the Egyptian sorcerers throw down their staffs and they become serpents. And no one there is stupid. They know what a serpent is and they know that a miracle has been performed. It's an amazing thing to think that Satan, through these Egyptian sorcerers, is able to duplicate the miracle. Actually, we're going to see over the next few chapters that, that Satan's power is able to duplicate the first two plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians. Satan has real power. It's far greater than the power we have. We're no match for him. But what we have to understand as the people of God is that the issue is not our power. The issue is God's power, and Satan is no match for God. That's what you see in verse 12. That's the message of verse 12. When Moses' staff swallows the staffs of the Egyptian sorcerers, it's this very clear declaration that God's power and authority is greater than Pharaoh's, and that means that it was greater than the power behind Pharaoh, which is Satan. And that's a wonderful comfort for us. Because, as we mentioned at the beginning of this service, Satan is still active and powerful and at work. The the word in 1 John 5.19 is appropriate where it says that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And that means as America grows darker, we can expect to see more of Satan's power shining through more and more satanic clubs in elementary schools and other horrible things. But you know, we don't need to be afraid. Why? Because Satan is no match for God. Now, the devil is God's devil. The devil is a chained dog. He can only go so far as God permits. 
And that means that God, who is good to his sons and daughters, never allows Satan to harm one of his children in a way that they are ultimately harmed. No, God is sovereign in control. Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, The Prince of Darkness Grim, We Tremble Not for Him, His Rage We Can't Endure, For Lo, His Doom Is Sure, One Little Word Shall Fell Him. That is true now. That is true today. Our God is sovereign. So we don't need to be fearful. No, God is stronger than all. He's stronger than all of his enemies. He is the true God. It does mean this. It means we need to be strong and courageous as we serve this glorious God. And he can help us do it. Looking at these verses, chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 13, we've learned three truths. God patiently accomplishes his purposes. God's ministers are to speak God's word. And God is greater than all of his enemies. But really, as we leave this passage this morning, we should think of it as something of a thunderstorm that is approaching. You see, the, the clouds of God's judgment are drawing close. The raindrops are beginning to fall even now. The wind is blowing, and Pharaoh should seek shelter. But he doesn't. And as a result, he will face God's wrath along with all of Egypt. And we'll see that as we continue to study the book of Exodus together.